Do people ever, because you're a musician, ask you to explain like songs or music to them? Oh, uh, yeah, no, totally. Uh, so I got my cousin asked me the other day to explain something to her about this song. Hey, how are you? Hey, Lorraine, how are you? I'm doing all right. Her question was really simple, but it's got a complicated answer. Is there a musically legitimate reason for why I have had a months-long obsession with Walk the Moon, Shut Up, and Dance? <laughs> you know, is there like a, a trick in musical theory of something that just sticks in our brains? Well, even though I know about music theory, I don't think that I hear anything that you don't hear. I think we both agree that the song is really catchy. But I do think that there's a kind of social capital that people who have backgrounds in musicology and music theory have in terms of their interpretation that your average listener isn't going to have. Sure, but we manufactured that, actually. (laughs) We told you that you don't know enough about music and only we could explain it to you. And for some reason, everybody believed us. That's that's what cracks me up. Hey, I'm Brian Barone. And I'm John Lagomarsino, and you're listening to Tuner. This is a show about how pop music works. And, you know, why it works. And, yeah, that means we're going to get technical about music. But not too technical, because, honestly, that's not really what matters. So, today's track, Shut Up and Dance. It sounds like Lorraine is looking to music theory to give her some big, concrete answer for how the song works. But... Knowing about music theory doesn't unlock some absolute appreciation that Lorraine doesn't have access to. So right now you're probably thinking, well, why are we even here then? If Lorraine likes Shut Up and Dance, she just likes it, right? Well, because it's fun to talk about why she likes it, and music theory gives us one way to do that. Okay, then we'd better put aside Walk the Moon for a minute and and talk about what music theory actually is, since it'll be coming up a lot in this series. And don't worry, we're just going to do this once, since this is the first episode. But it's really important, because it's the whole reason we're here at all. Okay, time for some history. It's easy to get the idea that those of us trained in music theory have access to some bunch of objective, eternal, magical, quasi-mathematical, or scientific criteria. We don't. The other thing to know about capital MT music theory is that it has a history and that it has an agenda. Most of the terms and concepts you'd learn in a course on music theory at a university or a conservatory were developed between the 18th and early 20th centuries to explain and justify the music favored by elite Europeans. That is, until the turn of the 20th century. That's when a bunch of those elite Europeans... Schoenberg, Stravinsky, those guys... They decided to just break music as it was known up to that point. Basically, they had to make a whole new set of music theories to explain whatever the hell it was that they were doing. The jig was up. Obviously, we weren't working from one definitive cosmic user's manual for music. This would have been obvious to anyone who played or sang or listened to other music anywhere else around the globe, where music worked in countless different ways. But none of these Europeans, and by now Americans too, bothered to ask. But here's what's interesting. We still insist on using all the old terminology in music theory, even when we try to describe new music. And that sort of sets up a problem. There's this stigma around music theory. 
To music fans who don't consider themselves music scholars, it can seem intimidating or cold or clinical. And let's be real, it makes us sound pretty pompous, too. I mean, when we get going, you just want to stuff us in a locker or something. So why do we music nerds keep insisting on using all these old words and methods to think about music? Honestly, because music theory is still the handiest thing we've got in a lot of cases. And most of the pop songs we love have some roots in European music, so a lot of these terms still fit pretty well. But we just have to be careful about the assumptions that come with them. Because you know what happens when you assume, right? You reinscribe a hegemonic, colonialist power structure that propagates a Eurocentric ontology and privileges the practices of the holders of the dominant portion of economic, military, and cultural capital. No, it makes an ass of you and me. So let's get back to Lorraine's question. Is there a musically legitimate reason for why I have had a months-long obsession with Walk the Moon, Shut Up and Dance? When you think about it for a minute, there aren't that many kinds of pop songs. You've got your occasional story song. And there are your protest songs. Everybody knows about Mississippi God damn. Maybe the occasional song about mourning. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. But most pop songs are love songs. And there are really only a few varieties. I love you, but you don't know it yet. Will you love me back? I love you, you left me, and now I'm sad. I love you, you left me, you suck. And maybe a few others. But there's one kind of love song that's proven especially charming. The song about the ecstasy of falling in love. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met. She's just the girl for me and I want all the world to see we've met. It's timeless. And that's the most important thing about the appeal of Shut Up and Dance. Everything going on in the song, from its harmonic underpinnings to its lyrics to its instrumentation, is in service of nostalgia. This participation in the tradition of old-school songs about falling in love is one reason we find the song so damn infectious. I mean, just listen to these lyrics. A backless dress and some beat-up sneaks My discotheque, Juliet, teenage dream I felt it in my chest so she looked at me I knew we were bound to be together lady in question is clearly awesome and our singer's really, really happy about her fondness for him. What kind of Scrooge can't get on board with that? Another genre game that Shut Up and Dance plays uh, trades in a particular kind of nostalgia-like memory. The youngest member of Walk the Moon, Eli Maiman, is just a few months older than me. So the late 80s, early 90s sound world of the tune brings us back to music that lives in the penumbra of our memory. Sounds that shaped our emerging consciousness as little kids. Cool. First episode, and we're already using the word penumbra. I love it. Check out the guitar tone in Shut Up and Dance's opening. Now listen to what The Edge does in U2's I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. It's got that same crystalline sound soaked in digital delay. The U2 illusion is so strong, in fact, that I swore I heard an Irish accent the first time I listened to the song. And sticking with this opening lick, you can also hear a family resemblance to the opening phrase of Tom Petty's Free Fallen. Both songs play with the alternation of a major chord with sus4 and sus2 chords. They're in different keys and tempos, and use different instruments, sure, but the underlying structure of the lick is practically copy-pasted. Check it out. And that's to say nothing of the synth or gated reverb drum sounds. 
or the disco-y 16th notes on an opening and closing hi-hat that also play on the particular psychology of us millennials. But it's also just really freaking catchy. I had it on repeat while we were working on the script, and it's been stuck in my head for like a week. And the scary thing is, I don't really mind. For me, the catchiest passage is the pre-chorus. She took my arm. I don't know how it happened. We took the floor and she said. To explain why I find it so fetching, we need to dig into the workings of its counterpoint a bit. I've got my guitar out here, so we technically call this the outer voice counterpoint of the pre-chorus, meaning what the bass and the upper voice are doing. The upper voice is the melody in this case. One reason it's so catchy is that those outer voices are moving in what we call parallel sixths. That means that two voices or parts begin spaced six notes apart. So one, two, three, four, five, six. That's six. And then each of the notes in that sixth travel the same distance in the same direction. So they continue to stay spaced six notes apart. That's it. So parallel sixths crop up time and time again in music that people really like. From the intro to Sam and Dave's Soul Man. To literally anything by Palestrina. The hook also grabs us so effectively because it begins with a sonority called a first inversion chord, or in classical music, a sixth chord. That name means that we take the note that usually sits in the middle of a three-note chord and we stick it in the bass. So in a lead sheet for this part of the song, the first chord would be pronounced D-flat over F, and that means it's a D-flat major chord with an F in the bass, making it a first inversion chord. See, it's a really nice sound, since the middle note is what gives the chord its color. Here it makes it a major chord, and putting it in the bass gives it a lot of importance. First inversion chords are so powerful, in fact, that 18th and 19th century composers felt they ought to be handled with extra special care. For you nerds, that means that doubling the third of five six chords was generally forbidden. Yeah, if you've ever taken piano lessons, pull out any Haydn or Mozart or Beethoven sonatas you might have played, and notice that, say, in any pieces in G, D major chords with an F-sharp in the left hand won't have any F-sharps in the right hand. That's the special handling he's talking about. These two factors, those parallel sixths and the first inversion chord, make the pre-chorus stand out. In particular, the first inversion chord possesses what a music theorist might call a high degree of directionality. It strongly guides our ears towards the next chord. It helps an image stick in our minds. It makes our experience vivid. And speaking of vivid, there's this thing I've wanted to do, and I'm not really sure it means much of anything, but listen to this. She took my arm. I don't know how it happened. We took the floor and she Another 80s nod and more nostalgia. This pre-chorus has it all. Okay, but let's talk about the chorus that actually happens after the pre-chorus. Okay, the chorus. Uh, It's so infectious. Where do I even start? 
One brilliant little move has to do with the shift from syncopated phrasing to on-the-beat phrasing in the vocal melody, which is synchronized with the entrance of a super dancey, four-on-the-floor groove in the drums. Notice the rests that begin each of the first three measures in the pre-chorus. This off-beatness is what people call syncopation. Rest. She took my arm. Rest. I don't know how it happened. Rest. We took the floor and she said. Now listen for how the words dare, eyes, hold, and up in the first half of the chorus all land squarely on those previously unoccupied beat ones. This resolution from a syncopated scheme to a beat-oriented one makes a feeling that theorists might call a rival, but which we experience quite clearly as an irresistible urge to dance. Oh God! Walk the Moon heightens the moment even more by bringing in a drum groove that thwacks away at the kick drum on every beat and deploys those disco-y hi-hat 16s we were talking about earlier. It's basically the musical equivalent of the swirling colors of a lava lamp. Ah, and look, we're back at nostalgia. Mm -hmm. Let's take a quick look at the uh, influences or illusions... Or thefts. Right, that they took for Shut Up and Dance's chorus. First, the harmony. Now, when we talk about chords in traditional music theory, we refer to them by their Roman numerals. So, in any key, D-flat in this song, there are seven notes in play. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven and eight, which is actually the same as one again. And in any key, there are seven corresponding triads, or basic three-note chords, that we can use. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and we're back to one. When we move from one chord to another chord, we call that a progression. In the chorus of Shut Up and Dance, Walk the Moon is using a chord progression you've probably heard before. It's one, four, six, five. This is a progression that shows up all over rock, like here. Yeah, see, Shut Up and Dance reaches back through pop and rock history to offer us the pleasing comfort of old friends. And what about this phrase, ooh, shut up? First of all, there's the syllable ooh, and then there's the weird pronunciation of shut up itself. On one level, it's just kind of fun. But it doesn't resemble the word as we say it so much as it does the nonsense syllables that have cropped up in music throughout history. Think of all that Renaissance falla lying. Maybe the shut up reminds us of doo-wop or, again, early rock and roll. Shut Up and Dance actually plays a double memory game. It toys with both what we remember as millennials and what we share with our parents from the rock canon. Yeah, so all of the barely hidden musical nostalgia for the age of the sock hop, plus, for example, the mention of discotheques in the lyrics. And let's not forget about that music video, which takes place at, I, I guess, what we can assume is a poorly lit high school dance. Right. All of that gets us imagining some kind of idealized U.S. teenager land full of carefree days and high school flings. And it tugs on leave it to beavery ideals of youth or America, first love, maybe even suburbia. If we were in a mood to dive deep... But we're not, right? Uh, we might even God. identify an echo of what author ta Coates dubs the dream. A related set of notions about race, belonging, and achievement in America at the core of lots of the country's injustices, both past and present. Well, now we sound like jerks. Look, my, my point is... How Shut Up and Dance works turns out not to be so simple at all. 
This stew of illusions and invention and pleasure is what pop music is all about. It, well, besides money. At the end of the day, you won't find the artfulness of pop music in its notes, which are usually pretty simple, but rather what it does to us and what it dares us to do in return. Pop music literally moves us. That's what's really at stake here. Well, that and again, millions and millions and millions of dollars. So while we can dance all we want to, let's not shut up about it. Thanks for listening. Tuner is Brian Barone and me, John Lagomarsino. Special thanks today to my cousin Lorraine and to her sister, Walk the Moon superfan Helene, too. This week's song, Shut Up and Dance, was performed and written by Walk the Moon. They are Nick Patrika, Kevin Ray, Sean Wagaman, and Eli Maiman. And other songwriting credits include Ben Berger and Ryan McMahon. The original recording was produced by Tim Pagnotta, mixed by Neil Avron, and mastered by Joe Laporta. It's on the band's album, Talking is Hard. If you like the show, you can visit our website, tuner.show, and follow us on Twitter, at TunerShow. And make sure to subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it, too. You can search for Tuner on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Overcast, any podcast app, basically. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Listener.